G'day, welcome to Age Abuse and Justice, where each episode I summarise an elder abuse case to demonstrate what elder abuse looks like and how the law deals with it. My name is Tanya Chapman, and today I'm diving into the wild and crazy world of written agreements. Before I get into the details of this case, it gets a bit complex and perhaps a bit hard to understand, so I want to break it down to its bare basics right up front. A son and his wife own a house with a mortgage that they're struggling to pay and they're about to lose the house. So they say to the son's mum, Mum, could you sell your unit and come and move in with us? Give us the money, we'll pay off our mortgage and we'll look after you for the rest of your life. They discuss this, they get a written agreement and they do it. And they're living together. But it falls apart and the mum moves out. And now she wants her money back. And they have to look to what were the terms of this agreement to see whether she can get her money back. When you negotiate a transaction with someone, you may talk about it for many months. And finally, you put your agreement in writing. What is the agreement? Is it the written document and only the written document? Or does the agreement include everything that was said and agreed to in the lead-up to the written document? Sometimes the written document will include a clause that specifically states that the written document embodies the entire agreement, and everything else that came before it is irrelevant. Where there isn't one of these clauses, it can be difficult to determine what forms part of the agreement. But when agreements go wrong, you first have to look at exactly what the document says. The background. Okay, so I'm not sure of the pronunciation of these last names, so I'm going to mainly use first names. Frank Mineri and Gelsomina Commande live together in a de facto relationship. Rita Trillo is Frank's mother. There had been a falling out between Frank and his mother, Rita, but in May 2007, Rita re-established contact with Frank, and not long after that, Frank and Gelsomina visited Rita at her home in Lawler. They said that they were in financial trouble, They had a lot of debts and they had a mortgage on their house they were struggling to pay. In August 2008, Frank and Gelsomina asked if they could move in with Rita into her two-bedroom Lawler unit. Rita moved out of the master bedroom so that Frank and Gelsomina could have it and moved into the second bedroom. Gelsomina's child also moved in and slept on the couch. Frank and Gelsomina owned a big home in Coburg, which they rented out while they were living with Rita in her unit. Shortly after moving in with Rita, Frank suggested that Rita sell her small unit and buy a larger home that they could all live in together. Rita put her unit on the market in October 2007, just a few months after her son and his family had moved in. In December 2007, Frank and Gelsomina changed their minds. They said that instead of buying a larger home which would be in Rita's name, they would use the money from the sale of the unit to pay off some of their mortgage and they could all move into the Coburg house together. Because the Coburg house would stay in Frank and Gelsomina's names, they promised Rita that she would be able to live in the house for the rest of her life and they would take care of her as she aged. They also told her that if she ever needed to go into a nursing home, they would pay the nursing home fees. Rita agreed, but the unit was taking a long time to sell. It was on the market from October 2007 to June 2008. In May 2008, Rita even thought about taking the unit off the market, but her son said to her, Look, mum, if you don't sell the unit, the bank will take our house. So the house stayed on the market and was eventually sold in June 2008. Rita insisted on having a solicitor prepare a document for their agreement. 
They went to a solicitor Frank had used before and a short agreement was drawn up. The agreement said, and I'm paraphrasing, but in consideration of the gift of $240,000 from Rita to Frank and Gelsimina, they agreed to look after Rita for the rest of her life and to let Rita live in their home in Coburg or wherever they may move to. Even though Rita insisted on getting something in writing, she said that she did not speak with the solicitor, that instead it was Frank and Gelsimina who gave the solicitor his instructions for preparing the document, and Rita was only asked to sign the papers. Rita signed the agreement on the 20th of August 2008. The sale was completed nine days later, and immediately Frank and Gelsimina, Gelsimina's child, and Rita began living at the Coburg property. What I have said so far is mainly Rita's version of events. Frank and Gelsimina had a different version. They said that Rita wanted to get out of the Lawler unit, that she wanted to move into the Coburg home with them, and she wanted to give Frank the money from the sale of her unit. Rita said that they lived in the Coburg house together fine for about three months, but then Frank and Gelsimina began to act in a way which demeaned and humiliated her and caused her to fear for her well-being. The court record doesn't go into too much detail, but states that there was insufficient evidence to show that Frank and Gelsimina were to blame for the falling out. The court determined that there was a falling out between the parties and continued cohabitation became impractical. Rita moved out less than a year later in April 2009 and went to live in an aged care facility. Now that she was no longer living in the house, Rita asked for her money back. Frank and Gelsimina refused. They said it was a gift and they weren't obliged to repay it. The legal proceedings. Rita started legal proceedings, but she can't just say, I want my money back. She needs to tell the court what outcome she wants and why they should give it to her. Her main argument was that there was a constructive trust. To put it simply, she was saying that her money that was used to pay off some of the mortgage gave her a right to a percentage of the property. The court didn't go into any calculations, but it might help to understand why Rita's main argument was for an interest in the property rather than just for getting her money back. So let's say that at the time her money went into the mortgage in 2008, the house was worth $500,000 and she paid $240,000. This would equal a 48% interest in the property. The hearing was in 2013 and let's say that by now the property is worth about $650,000. Rita's 48% share would be worth $312,000. So her investment would have increased. And that's why she was arguing for a percentage of the property as her main argument rather than just her money back. A huge part of Rita's case was everything that had been agreed verbally before the written agreement. It is only verbally that it was said that Rita's money would be used to pay off the mortgage. That wasn't in the written agreement. The written agreement also called the money a gift. And what the parties had agreed verbally was that the money was in exchange for the right to live in the house for the rest of her life and for Rita to be cared for by Gelsimina. Frank and Gelsimina argued that the written agreement embodied the whole agreement and the agreement called it a gift and didn't specify that it had to be spent on the mortgage. And for that reason, it didn't entitle Rita to an interest in the house. They argued that whatever was said before the written agreement didn't matter, that the court couldn't even consider it and that any verbal agreement should be excluded, especially where it contradicted the written document. 
The court noted that where a written agreement looks to be the complete agreement, it will be treated as the complete agreement, unless there is evidence that it is not intended to be the complete agreement. In this case, the events leading up to the written agreement demonstrate that it is not the complete agreement. The reasons being A. It is a very brief document, and yet the parties had discussed so much more, including that if Rita needed to move into aged care, Frank and Gelsamina would pay for it. This is something that was obviously discussed by the parties, but not included in the written agreement. B. The document calls it a gift, then puts conditions on the gift, but does not set out what the consequences will be if the conditions are breached. C. Before the written agreement was even drafted, Rita took actions to her detriment, relying on the verbal agreement. She put her house on the market once it was agreed that she would live with Frank and Gelsamina, and they would look after her for the rest of her life. When her house didn't sell, she considered taking her house off the market. It was Frank who convinced her to continue to try and sell the property, and for the reason that they urgently needed the funds to keep the bank from taking the Coburg property. And she entered into a contract to sell her property, without having any alternative accommodation lined up. She was relying on the promise that she could live with Frank and Gelsamina, so she obviously wasn't worried about being homeless. Frank and Gelsamina argued that Rita wouldn't have wanted a written agreement if they had all reached an agreement already. They also argued that Rita was not willing to bind herself to an agreement until it was in writing, which they argued meant that the written agreement was the whole agreement. They based this on the fact that Rita didn't trust them. Rita even admitted in court that when she asked for the written agreement, Gelsamina said words like, Look, our word is enough, should be enough. And Rita replied that it wasn't enough, that they had tricked her before and she wanted to see a solicitor. Frank and Gelsamina therefore argued that any verbal discussion could not have been a formal agreement, because Rita didn't trust them enough to bind herself to any arrangement unless it was in writing. The court didn't accept that argument. They found that Rita put her house on the market and kept it there, based on the verbal agreement between the parties. The fact that she insisted on a written agreement before handing over her money was merely another condition of the agreement. In these cases, it is always best to have a backup argument, so if your first argument is unsuccessful, the court can consider your second argument, or even your third if that one fails. Rita's last attack was an argument of equity, that having sold her unit and transferred almost all of her remaining assets to her son and his wife, she had the right to expect that the law would require them to honour promises they made to her, and as they had failed to fulfil their promise, she was entitled to her money back. The principles of equity look at what the parties intended, rather than the strict wording of the legal document. Because there seems to be an odd rule of law for everything, Frank and Gelsamina argued that this was against the parole evidence rule. That rule says that evidence of surrounding circumstances are admissible to help interpret the contract only if the language in the contract is ambiguous. The court, however, decided that the word gift in the written agreement was ambiguous and entitled the court to look at the previous conduct and statement of the parties. The court permitted evidence of prior oral arrangements between the parties. The judge mentioned that the parties had discussed the arrangement for almost a year and that the short written agreement couldn't encompass all of the terms discussed by the parties. He also referred to Rita's conduct, acting to her detriment in selling the unit. So the winner of the case was Rita. The Appeal Frank and Gelsamina appealed the decision. They argued that it was wrong to refer to evidence of any verbal arrangements because the written document was intended to be the complete agreement. 
They also said that the evidence of oral arrangements couldn't have been omitted as it contradicted the terms of the written agreement. The appeal court did agree with the original decision to a certain extent. They agreed that the agreement was partly written and partly oral. They found that the written agreement was not inconsistent with the earlier verbal agreements. Even though the written agreement did not say that the money was to go towards paying off the mortgage, it was pretty much essential for the agreement to take effect. The bank was pressing for payment of the mortgage. Frank and Gelsomina were on the verge of losing the house. If they didn't apply the money to the mortgage, they would have lost the house and they would have no home in which Rita could live with them for the rest of her life. So the verbal agreement did not contradict the written agreement and objectively, the terms of the written agreement were only possible giving effect to the terms of the verbal agreement, if that makes sense. The court noted that even if the written agreement was the entire agreement, they could still consider earlier verbal agreements as a form of collateral warranty. Along the lines of, reader would only give them the money subject to the warranty that they had previously given her that they would use the money to pay off the mortgage. However, the appeal court differed in one relevant aspect. Rita had argued that she had a constructive trust, which entitled her to a percentage share in the house. The appeal court disagreed with this. They based this on the fact that the written agreement provided that Rita could live with Frank and Gelsomina wherever they lived. So that meant the Coburg house, but if they moved it would also apply to whatever house they moved to next. This implied that Frank and Gelsomina were free to sell the house whenever they wanted and buy or rent another house wherever they wanted and they were only required to allow Rita to live with them wherever that may be. The Court of Appeal changed the orders. Instead of having a percentage share in the Coburg property, they awarded Rita a debt secured against the Coburg property for the money she had contributed plus interest. If you were to read the decision, you might find it confusing because the court goes over the evidence and makes the decision, confirming that the verbal agreement was part of the agreement. But then the court goes on to say, in case we are wrong about that. Basically saying, even if we're wrong on that base, even if the verbal agreement is not part of the agreement, we would still take Rita's side. And the other reasoning they base this on is that they said that Even if the written agreement was the entire agreement, they could still give the oral arrangement consideration under equitable principles that say it would be unconscionable to allow Frank and Gelsomina to retain the benefit of the reduced mortgage without having to account to Rita for her contribution. Outcome Even though the appeal court changed the outcome, Rita was still the winner of the case, and Frank and Gelsomina were ordered to pay her $240,000 with interest. The original court had ordered that Frank and Gelsomina pay Rita's legal cost. They argued that they shouldn't have to because Rita's representation was pro bono, for free. However, the terms of Rita's agreement with her solicitors was that they would only bill her for the cost and fees if another party was ordered to pay her cost. And the court recognised that conditional cost agreements like this are important for promoting access to justice, which may otherwise be unaffordable. In this case, Rita had given most of her money to Frank and Gelsomina. She didn't have any money left over to pay legal fees to get her money back. But then the court looks at the Catch-22 argument. There is no legal obligation to pay until the court makes a cost order, but the court cannot make a cost order where there is nothing to pay. 
The court said that focusing too much on this catch-22 argument allows form to triumph over substance. They held that Frank and Gelsomina are liable to pay readers' legal costs. The High Court Appeal Not satisfied with the outcome, Frank and Gelsomina applied to the High Court to be able to appeal the decision. Rita's solicitor tried to argue that allowing them to appeal would be a huge prejudice to her, noting that she had been waiting for four and a half years for her money back already, that she was not young, and that making her wait longer to get an outcome was significant for her. The High Court held that any prejudice to her would be minor, along the lines of, she's already waited four and a half years, what's a couple more months? I don't agree with this. I feel that as the proceedings go on, clients lose the will to fight and may eventually decide that this is not how they want to spend their time, especially older clients who are aware that they may not have many years left. However, the High Court found that the appeal had no prospects of success, so they would not allow it. One argument that was raised that wasn't really answered was that, okay, so we have this agreement that Rita would put the money forward, it would be used to pay the mortgage, and they would all live together for the rest of Rita's life. Well, it was Rita who decided to leave the house. That was her decision. Frank and Gelsamina didn't make her leave, so in effect they were willing to uphold their side of the bargain. They argued that the agreement created obligations for Rita as well. She had agreed to pay this money towards the mortgage and only months later changed her mind and wanted her money back, leaving Frank and Gelsamina in a difficult position. There's something to this argument, but the High Court really didn't explore it. And I wish they had, because I think it's a pretty valid point. If you took away age and relationship and any level of dependency, and you just had two adults... And for over a year, they talk about this arrangement where one's going to contribute some money and they're going to live together in the other one's house. And they move towards this and take steps towards this agreement and then they put it in place. The money is contributed and they live together. But after only a short while, the party that contributed some money, they decide they don't like this arrangement after all and they want to back out and they want all their money back. But they entered into this arrangement willingly. Neither party considered any terms about how to get out of it, but let's say they were both equal parties. Shouldn't people be required to uphold these agreements they get into? The party who wants to uphold the agreement is not necessarily the bad guy because they want to uphold this agreement. So I wish the court had looked into it more. I do think it's different in this situation because we're looking at an older, more vulnerable person and her relationship with her son and the trust she would have put in her son. That does make it different. But to what extent? Final words. I'm a huge advocate for getting family agreements in writing. A solicitor can also help with advice about the words to use in the agreement to make sure that it correctly reflects the party's intentions. So in this case, just the use of the word gift in the document caused huge problems. And a solicitor can also help with clauses to include, such as what will happen if a party wants out of the agreement. It's a really essential thing to put in there. Yes, we're going into this. What are the terms we've got to abide by? But what can we do if we want to get out? It may cost you a little bit of money to get a lawyer to draft the agreement for you, but it may save you massive legal fees at a later date. 
and years of your life when you could be doing anything else other than dealing with legal proceedings. It is sad that in this case it appears that the solicitor didn't give the agreement the serious attention it deserved. They should have firstly confirmed who their client was. Was it Rita or was it Frank and Gelsomina? But it can't be both. They should have included some background in the agreement so that anyone reading it could understand what the situation was and what the parties were agreeing to. The solicitor should have also turned their mind to whether or not to include a clause that said this written agreement was a whole agreement and all previous negotiations don't count. I feel like Rita had the foresight to realise that this arrangement had some risk involved. She insisted on getting something in writing to protect herself. Unfortunately, the agreement wasn't drafted adequately to protect her and prevent her from needing to spend four and a half years in a legal battle. Another thing I will say about this case is that when family agreements break down, it can take years before the matter has been dealt with. This case is a prime example of that. Rita moved out of the property in April 2009. The first court hearing was in January 2012, and a decision was handed down in August 2013. The court decision was appealed, and the decision of the Court of Appeal was made in September 2014. When Frank and Gelsomina sought to reopen the case, their application to the High Court was heard on the 19th of December 2014. That is four and a half years that these people were fighting this battle, incurring legal costs, and for Rita that was four and a half years without her money. And I think this is something that people really aren't aware of. They might be aware that family arrangements could break down and could go wrong, but they're not also thinking, how long will it take to fix it? Um, They might think, oh, it's going to be difficult, it might be expensive, but I really don't think people understand that it's not a quick fix. It's not a couple of months. It's years of your life. So that was the case of Mineri versus Chirillo. The citation is provided in the notes. If you have any thoughts on the case or recommendations of cases for me to cover, I'd love to hear them. You can email them to me at elderservice at legalaid.newsouthwales.gov.au. A big thank you from the Elder Abuse Service for listening in. If you have identified or if you are at risk of elder abuse, you can call the helpline on 1800 353 374. Or if you are on the New South Wales Central Coast, you can contact our service on 024324 5611.